This is Our American Stories, and today we celebrate Veterans Day. This holiday started out as Armistice Day to mark the anniversary of the end of major hostilities in World War I. After World War II, this was expanded to honor all veterans. In recent decades, military service has become more of a family tradition than a national one. As we've moved to an all-volunteer force, fewer and fewer of us know the men and women who serve in our armed forces. So on this Veterans Day, we'd like to start the hour by telling you the story of a legend among veterans. This is the man that other Army Green Berets think of when they need that little extra inspiration in the middle of a harrowing firefight. You know how much we love artists on this show, but no writer in Hollywood could have come up with this story. We're actually going to tell Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story twice. First, let's hear President Ronald Reagan read the unbelievable citation for his Medal of Honor, our nation's highest award for valor. And then we'll hear Benavidez himself tell his life story that began with being a poor, orphaned, mixed-race dropout. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, United States Army, retired for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Where there is a brave man, it is said, there is the thickest of the fight. There is the place of honor. On May 2nd, 1968, Master Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, distinguished himself by a series of daring and extremely valorous actions while assigned to Detachment B-56, 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. On the morning of May 2nd, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area west of Lac Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction, but were unable to land due to intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Benavides was at the forward operating base in Lac Ninh monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavides voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move to the pickup zone, he directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the hovering helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and the classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the team leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen 
and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and his helicopter crashed. Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter, distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directing the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to carry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand combat, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. Upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in critical straits, to expose himself constantly to withering enemy fire, and his refusal to be stopped despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership, tenacious devotion to duty, and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds were in keeping with the finest traditions of the military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Sergeant Benedictus, a nation grateful to you and to all your comrades living and dead, awards you its highest symbol of gratitude. For service above and beyond the call of duty, the Congressional Medal of Honor. And no one did those ceremonies better than Reagan because Reagan, well, that's what he lived for, was that kind of ceremony. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Master Sergeant Benavides himself. And we're all grateful to all of you, and fallen or not, here on Veterans Day, anyone who served, tip a hat, thank them, honor them, all veteran stories in a way. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides' story here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We just heard President Ronald Reagan read an almost unbelievable Medal of Honor citation. But who is the man behind this legend? Here's Roy Benavidez himself telling us where it all began. I come from a little town named Quero, Texas. I was born there, Turkey capital of the world. After the death of my mother and father, at early age, my brother and I were adopted by an aunt and uncle. We moved to El Campo, Texas, a town southwest of Houston, by an hour and a half. I was raised there. I went to school there. I worked at odd jobs, shine shoes, sold papers, pick cotton. And like a fool, I dropped out of school and I ran away from home. I'm not proud of that. I needed to learn a skill. I needed an education. My adopted father would tell me, son, an education and a diploma is the key to success. Bad habits and bad company will ruin you. Well, I was too old to go back to school. I didn't want to return back, so I joined the Texas National Guard. And I liked what I saw in men in uniform. And I qualified to join the regular army. I needed that education and learn the skill. So I was accepted into the regular army, and I heard about airborne. I heard about that extra pay that you get for jumping out of airplanes. So I qualified to go to jump school at Fort Bend, Georgia, but the Durham recruiters never told me what the training was like. For every mistake that you make, you do push-ups. And I can honestly tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm one of the guys that helped put Georgia into South Carolina doing push-ups. Well, I finished my training. I got assigned to a well-known unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the 82nd Airborne Division. And so, after a while there, I heard about the Special Forces. You know it as the Green Berets. And they were coming up, so I qualified to join the Special Forces. Of course, I'm a linguist. We and the Special Forces are trained to operate deep behind enemy lines with little or no support at all. We are trained in five specialties. I'm trained in three. Operation Intelligence, where I learn oceanography, meteorology, photography. I'm an interrogator and I'm a linguist. I'm trained in light and heavy weapons and cross transatlantic. I've been all over the world, the Far East, Europe, South and Central America, and two tours in Vietnam. I was assigned to Berlin, Germany, and I was declared one time that I was the only Hispanic American that could speak German with a southern accent. <laughs> Feeling danke, danke, sir. So I came back and retrained at Fort Bragg, and Vietnam was brewing up. In 1965, I was sent to Vietnam as an advisor to Vietnamese Infantry Unit. After a short period of time there, I stepped on a mine. I woke up in the Philippine Islands in Cloca Air Force Base. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I was declared never to walk again. I was transferred to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, Beach Pavilion. The doctors were initiating my medical discharge papers. Now, most people would take a landmine, paralysis, and discharge papers as subtle hints to retire, but not Benavides. That night, I would slip out of bed and crawl to a wall using my elbows and my chin. 
my back would just be killing me, I'd be crying. But I'd get to the wall, and I'd set myself against the wall, and I'd back myself up against the wall, and I'd stand there like Elijah, the Indian. I'd stand there and move my toes right and left, right. Every single chance I got, a, I got. I wanted to walk. I wanted to go back to Vietnam because of what the news media was saying about us, that our president was not needed there to burn the flag and what. And I saw a lot of other patients coming back, limbs missing. I wanted to go back. I was determined because I remember when I was taught in jump school, that old master sergeant would tell me, Benavides, quitters never win and winners never quit. What are you? So I'm a winner. I remember that my leader would tell me, faith, determination, and a positive attitude. A positive attitude will carry you further than ability. You can do it, Benavides. You can do it. I never forgot those three words. Never. So there I was at night, I'd slip out of bed. The nurses would catch me sometime. They would chew me out, give me a pill, a sleeping pill, put me to sleep. They would tell the doctors in the morning. I was determined to walk. Nine months later, here comes my medical discharge paper. And I told the doctor, doctor, look what I can do. He said, Sergeant, I'm sorry. Even if you can stand up, you'll never be able to walk. I jumped out of bed and I stood up right before him. My back was hurting, aching. I was crying. And I moved just a little bit. The doctor said, Benavides, if you walk out of this room, I'll tear these papers up. I walked out of that ward at Beach Pavilion. I walked out with a limp. I went back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I started my therapy again running five and ten miles a day, doing 50, 100 push-ups. And I made three parachute jumps in one day. I was ready to go back to Vietnam, physically and mentally ready to go back. My orders were to go to Central America as an advisor. But being a non-commissioned officer and knowing some of the good officers in the right places, my orders were diverted. So I, so I went back to Vietnam in 1968. And so now he's back in Vietnam. It's 1968, and the war is ramping up. Latter part of April, I was inserted, my buddy and I, to gather intelligence information behind enemy lines. After two days on the ground, my buddy was shot through the eye, the back, and legs. Our mission was completed, but I didn't want to leave my buddy behind. I called in for an extraction helicopter to come and get us out. They came in with the McGuire rig. McGuire rig is nothing but a piece of rope, nylon rope with a hook. In this case, there was two ropes. We hooked on, the enemy was firing at us. We pulled up, going up through the canopy of the jungle. Our rope started to twist and rub. You know, nylon, it burns when it rubs. As we cleared the canopy, our ropes were completely twisted and rubbing. And there was a non-commissioned officer that looked out of the helicopter riding as a safety man. And when he saw those two ropes burning, he immediately tied himself with a piece of rope around his waist and he pulled himself out of the helicopter and undid those two ropes. Separated them. That's dedication. That's love of fellow men and country. I'll never forget that man. 
We landed in a safe spot. My buddy was taken to the hospital shortly thereafter he expired. There was nothing more he could do for his buddy, so Benavidez naturally got ready to just go back out and do it again. I was in another staging area waiting for an next assignment. When I heard on the radio something like a popcorn machine, then I heard a voice, get us out of here, get us out of here, come in, get us out quick, ASAP. I asked the radio operator, who are those? He said, I don't know. They haven't gave us any call sign. And I saw some helicopter pilots run to the flight line, scrambling. I ran right behind them. We saw a helicopter coming in, land, and had a door gunner slumped over his weapon. When the helicopter landed, I unstrapped the door gunner, Michael Craig, 19 years old. We just celebrated his 19th birthday in March. I cradled him in my arms, and his last words were, my God, my mother and father. I asked the pilot, who are the people on the ground? He said, hey, he said, it's that black NCO, that non-commissioned officer saved your life the other day, remember? I said, Leroy Wright. Leroy always got paid for top secret assignments, him and Musso and O'Connor. So it was an instant reaction. I saw a bag of medical supplies, I picked it up, went over to my helicopter, got on the helicopter, we got on with the forward air controller, the guy that's in, he said, you can't go in there, you can't go in, it's too hot. Little did I know that I was going to spend six hours in hell. You can't go in there, you can't go in there, it's too hot. And when we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this story. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story here on Our American Story, celebrating Veterans Day, one veteran story, but it could be any veteran serving our country. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story, celebrating Veterans Day here. As always, we spend a full hour on that every day, and Memorial Day, and so many other days. And we celebrate military history on this show regularly. And it's sad that so few people have connection to our military and our armed forces and the lives of the people in them. But that's why we do this storytelling. You just heard how Sergeant Benavidez heard his buddies being overrun over the radio, so he decided to just jump on a chopper against everyone's advice. As he says, he did not know that that would be the start of his six hours in hell. He was practically a one-man army, providing cover fire and darting back and forth to bring back friendly wounded and secure classified documents. Here again, Master Sergeant Roy Benavides. You heard what the president read the citation of how in the Medal of Honor. But he didn't tell you of what I went through 
when I in, engaged in the hand-to-hand combat. I was hitting the mouth with the butt of the weapon. My jaws were locked. After my last return back to the helicopter, when I was boarded on, I was holding my intestines in my hand. We lifted up. The helicopter had over its payload. Blood was flowing on both sides of the helicopter. When we landed, it locked me in our staging area, and it started unloading. It started identifying the bodies. They found out I loaded three dead enemy soldiers in that helicopter. I didn't want to leave anybody behind. My mission was to recover the classified material, so if anybody had it, I, I, he was on a helicopter. So they let, they let the three enemy soldiers on the side, and because I sort of look oriental, they thought I was one of them, so they let me lay right next to them. And they were putting us in body bags. And I remember that my feet had been lifted, and I was inserted into the body bag, and I could hear that zipper coming up, and I thought, oh, my God, no, no. My eyes were shut because I had blood all over my face, my eyes, and the blood had dried up in my eyelids. And I couldn't talk because my jaws were locked, and I could hear that zipper coming up, coming up. And one of my buddies was doing the Mexican head dance, and he was yelling at the doctor, that's Roy, that's Roy Benavides. The doctor said, sorry, there's nothing I can do for him. Oh my God, and that zipper just, just coming up. I was trying to wiggle in my own blood. And finally, I find out later, Jerry Cottenham made that doctor at least to feel my heartbeat. When I felt that hand on my chest, I made the luckiest shot I ever made in my life. I spit in the doctor's face. So the doctor said, I think he'll make it. He'll... So I, uh, I was uh, cleaned up, put in a helicopter, alongside with my buddy, one of the guys that I had saved. We got airborne, and I just said to myself, hold on, buddy, just hold on. We're going to get some medical attention. And his grip tightened up on me. And then he let go. I said, oh, God, why do you put me through this test? Why? You helped me get these men out, save them, save this material, and now you take them away from me. Why? And I was crying, I was moving so much. That's the co-pilot. He happened to look back, and he thought that I was gasping for air, so he gets out of his seat, get his bayonet out, and he's going to do a track on me, and I'm about to kick him out of the helicopter. <laughs> That's just too much for one day. So they... We landed in the hospital at, at uh, Long Bend, and I was wheeled to the operating room. And as I was being lifted to my operating table, I saw this nurse on her hands and knees crying, yelling, asking God, why do you do this to these men? Why? Just crying. And as I turned a little bit to my left, I saw on the other operating table a man that had both legs and both arms missing. I passed out. I woke up in the ward. One of my buddies was laying next to me. We were so bandaged up, we couldn't talk. We used to wiggle our toes to make sure that we were still alive. After a short while, my buddy was transferred from there, and I thought he had died. I was transferred to Japan, Tachikawa, 
in that airplane that I was flying in Medivac, we lost two men. And I remember this nurse kept yelling at me, Benavides, you're not going to die on me. I'm going to pinch you every time you close your eyes. I'm going to pinch you. I'm going to pinch you. Boy, she kept pinching me. When I got to Tachikawa, when I got to Japan, and they wheeled me into the operating room, they disrobed me again. I remember the doctor. I heard him say, what in the world happened to you? I had blue spots, red spots all over me, and I said, that lady kept pinching me up there. <laughs> so after, I went back to Fort Sam Houston, the Beach Pavilion. And I stayed in that hospital almost a year. I continued with my career. Then I was awarded with a medal. After all of this, Benavidez recovered and he moved back to his home in Texas. For the rest of his life, he spread his message to young Americans. I was dedicating myself to come and speak to schools, to civic groups, to help anyone that I can help. My life was spared for a reason, and I hope there's a good reason. A lot of people call me a hero. I appreciate the title, but the real heroes are the ones that gave their life for this country. The real heroes are our wives, our mothers. Above all, the heroes are the ones that are laying in those hospitals, disabled for life in those hospital beds. But the real heroes are the future leaders of our country, these students that are staying in school and learning to say no to drugs. Those are our real heroes. You know, there's a saying among us veterans, for those that had fought for it, life has a special flavor that protected will never know. You have never lived till you almost died. And it is us veterans that pray for peace most of all, especially the wounded, because we have to suffer the wounds of war. I'm asked hundreds of times, would you do it over again? In my 25 years in the military, I feel like I've been overpaid for the service to my country. There'll never be enough paper to print the money nor enough gold in Fort Knox for me to have to keep from doing what I did. I'm proud to be an American, and even prouder. And I'm even prouder that I've earned the privilege to wear the Green Beret. I live by the motto of duty, honor, country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. Master Sergeant Benavidez, duty, honor, country. You never live unless you almost die. And we're going to just rip through the wars, the casualties, and those who were killed. The American Revolution, 25,000 died, 25,000 wounded. War of 1812, 15,000 died, 4,500 wounded. The Civil War... 750,000 dead. And then it just, well, World War I, 116,000 dead, 204,000 of our best and finest men wounded. World War II, 405,000 dead, 
667,000 wounded. The Korean War, 36,000 dead, 92,000 wounded. Vietnam, 58,000 dead, 153,000 wounded. And then Afghanistan, 2,350 dead, 18,000 wounded. And Iraq, 4,400 dead, 32,000 wounded. 1,354,000 of our finest, their lives cut short. And 1,500,000 wounded. Celebrating all of their lives and all of those who serve here on Veterans Day, this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our celebration of Veterans Day. We just talked about how many Americans have given their lives or limbs in service of our nation over the centuries, but of course, there are plenty of veterans living among us now. There are about 19 million men and women currently living who have previously served on active duty in the U.S. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, or Coast Guard, and 1.3 million on active duty right at this moment. And as fewer and fewer of us know members of the military as close friends and family, we might start thinking of them as some kind of other out there performing great deeds of heroism for us to cheer from the other side of the TV screen. But our veterans aren't others. Indeed, they're us. And we're reminded of that every time we read war letters. We've done a lot of those on our show, and this is one of our favorites. It comes from Fletcher Isaacs, grandson of World War II veteran Leonard Isaacs, who was killed in action on Iwo Jima in 1945. Here's Fletcher reading the letter Leonard sent to his two boys, including Fletcher's father, before he shipped out to serve in the Pacific, never to return. December 17, 1944. My dear little boys, I'm writing to you today just a week before Christmas Eve in the hope that you will get this little note at Christmas time. All of this coming week will be holidays, and I can just imagine the fun you'll be having, especially when you know that it's just a few days before Santa Claus will be coming. If it were possible, I would like to come down the chimney myself and crawl right into your stocking. Wouldn't that be a surprise? I would enjoy it even more than you, but since your dad is far away and Santa Claus has the only reindeers that will fly through the air, I'm afraid we will have to let Santa Claus use them. After all, he has so many places to go in such a short time. I won't be able to give you a Christmas present personally this year, but I do want you to know that I think of you all the time and feel very proud of the way you've been helping your mother while I'm gone. I know that it is only natural for young, healthy, and strong boys like you are to want to play and have fun all the time, but I do want you to think about helping Mummy because it's hard for her to do everything while I'm gone. I know that you would like to give me a Christmas present too, so I'll tell you what you can do, and this will be your Christmas present to me. Every day, ask Mummy if there's any errands that you can do for her, and when there are errands, to run. Say, sure, Mummy, and give her a big smile. Then during the day, go and pick up your room and look around. If there are toys scattered all around, or if you've left some of your clothes on the floor, pick them up. Also, when Mummy is busy trying to clean up the house, 
Don't leave her by herself, but ask Mummy if you can help take care of baby sister. If you do those things for me, well, that will be the finest Christmas present that you could give me. Oh yes, and Cece, are you eating your meals like a real man now? Well, my boys, I guess you often wonder why people fight and have wars, and why lots of daddies have to be away at Christmas time fighting, when it would be so much nicer just to be at home. That's a hard question to answer. But you see, some countries like Japan and Germany have people living in them just like some people you and I know. Those people want to tell everybody what they can do and what they can't do. No one likes to be told how to live their life. I know that you wouldn't like it if one of the boys in the neighborhood tried to tell you what church you should go to, what school you should go to, and particularly if that boy was always be trying to beat up some smaller or weaker boy. You wouldn't like that, would you? And unfortunately, the only way to make a person like that stop these sorts of things, or a country like Japan or Germany, is to fight them and to beat them and teach them that being a bully, because after all, that's what they are, is not the way to live and that we won't put up with it. What does all this mean to you? Just simply this, my boys. Dad doesn't want you to ever be a bully. I want you to always fight against anyone who tries to be one. I want you to always help the smaller fellow or the little boy who may not be as strong as you. I want you to always share what you have with the other fellow. And above all, my boys, have courage. Have courage to do the things that you think are right. Never be afraid to fight for what you think is right. To do those things, you need a strong body and a brave heart. Never run away from someone you may be afraid of. If you do, you will always feel ashamed of yourself, and before long, you will find it so easy to run away from the things that you should stand up and fight against. If you and lots of other boys try to do the things that Dad has been talking to you about in this letter, it may be that people will not have to fight wars in the years to come, and then all the daddies in the world will be home for Christmas. And that is where they belong. Perhaps some of the things that I've been talking about you don't quite understand. If you don't, Mummy will explain them to you, as she knows. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. God bless you. Daddy. And a dad just trying to cheer up the kids. Here's another letter, this one from the ancestor of a friend of this show, the late Maida Pearson Smith of Tennessee. This letter is from Amelia Irvin Smith to Daniel Smith, dated Monday, May 6th, 1861. Here's Faith reading this great letter. My dear husband, I've just heard from you through Tom Matthews, who has kindly offered to take this letter to you. He tells me that you have been or will be received into the company. I heard after you left that the company was full and all those who went up to Montgomery late were turned off. And I was in hopes there would be enough without you and you would soon be at home again with us. But I know it is wrong to be selfish and I will try to submit to it cheerfully and do my duty towards the precious charge you have left behind. I've thought of you every moment since you left, except when asleep and my imagination has presented a thousand pictures of your situation, but I cannot tell whether any of them are true or not. And I sincerely hope that you will be more comfortable than I can imagine. The children are continually talking about Pa 
and asking when he will come home. Little Percy has been calling you several times, and Sally says that I must go after you and bring you back. She can't do without you. I always tell them that you will come as soon as you can, and I feel that you will. But do not think for one moment that I wish you to sacrifice your honor in the least, even for the happiness of being always with you. For I love it as much as you could, and I would not for my life be the means of casting the slightest blemish on your dear name. So when your thoughts turn homeward, think of me as being more reconciled and cheerful than when you left. Do take care of yourself for my sake. You can't imagine what a desolate, hopeless existence life would be to me without you. When you write, tell me all about your fare and how and where you sleep. I hope you are not exposed to the night air much, but I know that there is a being who can make all things powerless to harm you, and it is in him I place my trust. May he watch over you and bless you in every undertaking and bring you back to us again safely. The children all send much love and many little messages, which I have not room to write. The long, long days that have passed away before I see you again will have an end sometime. And depend on it, my dear husband, I will try and bear the bitter separation as cheerfully as possible. Do write as often and as much as you can, for every word that comes from you is precious to me. Your affectionate, Amelia. And that was a terrific read, Faith. And there are so many more letters, and we play them every Memorial Day, too, because they're so terrific. And Andrew Carroll is one of the great collectors of war letters, and his book on the subject is, well, it's a must-read. You should have it in your home, and the family should rip through those letters together on these days. In addition to having the hot dogs and the hamburgers and all the other things, uh, spend some time thinking about our, our veterans and the folks who serve this country. And we want to end with a classic. Anyone who's ever seen Saving Private Ryan knows. And, well, it's a letter. And this is the reading of that very famous letter by one of the great Americans of all time. I have a letter here. Written a long time ago to a Mrs. Bixby in Boston. Bear with me. Dear madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine that would attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln.
And on this Veterans Day, we celebrate all who've served, all who did serve, all who are serving, and put their life in harm's way for all of us. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Veterans Day, their stories, and celebrated as always here on this show. Our American stories, and of all the stories we tell here, some of our very favorites are about the men and women who serve our nation in uniform. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear the story of Staff Sergeant Sal Junta, who explained how a T-shirt started him down a path to becoming the first living American to earn a Medal of Honor since the Vietnam War. And by the way, like all heroes, Sergeant Junta is deeply uncomfortable with the term hero. And, well, as he said it, I'm only mediocre, I'm average. And that's something, that humility, is something we hear over and over again from our best, the very best our nation has to offer. For many of our veterans, their time in uniform, both in peace and war, has shaped much of their adult lives. But for the overwhelming majority, their time in uniform is just a part of their lives. They will transition back to civilian life. What happens then? Today we're joined by Jonathan McConnell, a Marine combat veteran who is now president of Meridian U.S., a private security firm that primarily defends merchant ships off the coast of Somalia. To discuss just this topic, we were introduced to Jonathan by reading his excellent piece in The Federalist, quote, a look inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life. And Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Lee, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. You bet. Jonathan, before we start, we like to get to know people, who they are, where they're from. Talk a little about your childhood, your parents, where you grew up, your first job, Give us a sense and give our audience a sense of who you are. Well, I grew up in Alabama, uh, down in Mobile. My parents were high school sweethearts and then um, uh, got married and had my sister and I. It's just the two of us. I'm the youngest or the baby of the family and uh, went to grew up, went to Auburn University for undergraduate. And then after uh, graduating in uh, three years from there, I, it was right during the time of September 11th or uh, just following September 11th. So I decided to join the Marine Corps. Um, decided to, elected to pursue being an officer and uh, went through and became an infantry officer and then um, you know it, at that point uh, lived a storied career I mean I you know deployed twice to Iraq first time on the outskirts of Fallujah and the second time um, right there on the uh, Syrian border uh, near al Um had two completely different deployments uh, the first one was uh, much more kinetic uh, our battalion lost 18 Marines um, and then uh, came back for the second deployment just six months later and uh, our entire battalion, there was not a single Marine that fired a shot. Uh, so it, that was during the surge, and, or just post-surge, and, and you're looking at the success of that, uh, that time period and, and the success that the Marines had there in the Al-Anbar province. I, I think it uh, speaks volumes. Two weeks after getting back from Iraq, I, I drove through the night or checked out of the Marine Corps in two weeks, which I often say is my, probably one of my greatest accomplishments in life, and then uh, drove through the night and started law school the next day at the University of Alabama. Um, that was definitely an interesting experience just because uh, the transition was, was interesting. Uh, 
going from two weeks earlier, having been in Iraq, even though it wasn't a kinetic deployment, uh, still was definitely interesting. Uh, I would but, say that's a heck of a transition uh, compared to going from college to law school. Yours is slightly uh, more radical in, it, in its differences. By the way, you experienced the fruits of the surge, one of the most underreported and more remarkable achievements in combat history that is now not only not remembered, no one even knows about it. Correct. Yeah, it, it was it was truly amazing to watch it go from, you know, I, I think our you, know, you look at our worst day, you know, maybe nine significant activities, uh, whether it's being taking mortar fire, IED strikes, uh, small arms fire, to zero. Uh, you know, and, and really that was, even in areas, um, that wasn't just because we, it was six months later and several hundred clicks to the west. That was right outside of Fallujah, right outside of Ramadi. Um, that was because of the surge, and I think it was highly effective. Yeah, highly effective, and I think at that point the media had checked out of the war. Americans had, and regrettably the soldiers hadn't, and they were winning. And we right. know, we know that, and sadly I know that story because we talk to soldiers here on this show, and we don't consider ourselves a part of the media. That's why we call ourselves our American stories. We let the folks tell the stories, and we just sort of get out of the way. Tell me why you decided to join the Marine Corps, though, right out of Auburn, and how many other of your peers responded to nine eleven by graduating from a big, big state university and saying, "Heck, I think I want to join not only the military." But, well, the branch of service that would most likely see combat in a really dangerous place. You know, a lot of it just was a, a call to serve that I think so many military-age males have, uh, you know, in the United States. I, I almost went to the Naval Academy. I pursued that route until I went and visited it one summer, and I was just like, uh, my sister actually was at Auburn at the time. And uh, I spent, during the week, I went and visited the Naval Academy and saw the, you know, the regime there and, and how rigorous it was and structured it was. And then my sister, afraid of me joining the military, uh, basically told all of her sorority sisters, hey, my brother's uh, thinking about going to the Naval Academy or he's considering Auburn. Let's show him a good time. And uh, I drowned in, you know, 18, 19-year-old, you know, girls who were you know, like, hey, Johnson, come to Auburn. It's great. You know, and just was spoiled. And I, at that point, never looked back and was like, there's no way in the world I would go to the Naval Academy now. Right. Um, probably one of the funniest experiences of my life. But uh, we had a great time, went to you know, a football game, obviously, and then um, you know, had a great weekend. And at that point, I uh, decided to go to Auburn. You know, we weren't at war then. That was back in, in 1998, 1999. Um, and then I started in the fall of 2000. And then, you know, it had always felt like, you know, I'm missing out. And I remember sitting down with one of my Sunday school teachers who was, a, you know, a, just a mentor of mine, and he said, Jonathan, you know, what do you regret in life? And I was like, well, at this point, I don't regret anything. And I was like, well, you know, Rich, what do you regret? And he was like, I'm 55 years old. I regret not serving my country. And this is actually was the weeks after September 11th. He was like, I tried to join and go and, you know, see if they needed a doctor. And he was like, you know, they, they didn't. They kind of laughed me out of the room. And he was like, but, you know, he's like, now, especially after September 11th, that's, uh, you know, something that's heavy on my heart. And, you know, at that point, I was like, you know, I, I feel that too. Um, and, you know, and so at, at that point, I, I joined. Um, you know, a peer group had a few friends that, you know, I went to church with at uh, Auburn that did go on and, you know, one, um, you know, was flying f uh, fast movers for the Navy and a few that, that did end up serving, but there were not very many. Well, when we come back, we're going to dig a little bit more into your life in the Marines, how the Marines are different than the other branches, not better, not worse, but how they're different. And then we're going to get into the transition away from military life and into civilian life, the real guts and the heart of your work in the Federalist piece, a look inside a combat veteran's transition 
to civilian life. We're talking to Jonathan McConnell. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Jonathan's story when we come back. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Jonathan McConnell, whose terrific piece in The Federalist called A Look Inside a Combat Veteran's Transition to Civilian Life can be found. Google it, uh, The Federalist, and put in Combat Veteran's Transition. It'll pop up. You won't take your eyes off it. And uh, Jonathan, before we dig into the piece, what was it about the Marine Corps that drew you in as opposed to the other branches? And how is the Marine Corps, in your mind, different? And again, not better, not worse, but how is it different? You know, I think it's we're a smaller group. Uh, we're we're more. Uh, I think we're allowed to be very selective, but also too. I mean, I, I think it's amusing. I, I'm five foot ten. Uh, I'm very tall for the Marine Corps. Uh, I think that the Marines produce. You know, we have a reputation of being harder or being, you know, uh, more rigorous uh, at boot camp. And whether that's true or not, I, you know, I've never been to Army boot camp. I've never been to the Navy's boot camp. Um, but I, I think that we produce a fighter, you know, the esprit de corps, just a tenacity that's not often duplicated. Uh, we can be a little bit more selective with our physical fitness standards uh, because of our lower numbers that we have to achieve. But two, you know, I talk about the height. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not a tall guy, if, especially, you know, when I went to high school, I was a much shorter guy than I am now. And, and you know, I was a giant for the Marine Corps. You look at people that are, um, I think it often, you have uh, a lot smaller people in the Marine Corps because they're feisty and they you know, may have been picked on a lot in high school and, and they're not going to let that happen anymore. They're going to join the Marine Corps. And, and that tenacity and that, uh, you know, that uh, the, the bulldog mindset is definitely there in the Marine Corps. And it's, it's something that uh, you see even after the Marine Corps, uh, just people with an edge on them that, uh, you know, that are out there that, you know, to win. Yep. And tell us now, give us a story or two, setting up this exit from the military. I think we got to understand some of the things you, you saw and experienced, Jonathan, as a Marine infantry officer uh, and your frequent deployments to Iraq. Tell us a bit about just a couple of your overseas experiences. You know, to me, I often say it's the greatest honor I've ever had in my life, you know, to this point. Um, I say that cautiously because my, my wife is, uh, is, we are expecting our first child, a boy, uh, in about two months. Uh, so I have to say that extremely cautiously, and I think that will overtake as the greatest honor I've ever had. But, you know, leading American sons into battle, uh, being able to see what these young Marines will do, you know, 18, or actually 17 to 22-year-old kids, men who are out there and who will literally give their life for the Marine on their right or left. You know, I've watched, um, you know, where Marines have literally we start taking small small arms fire and Marines just all of a sudden it's the immediate actions that step in. And you have once, you know, one fire team starts laying down a base of fire while the other two fire teams start maneuvering and you execute fire maneuver where they start maneuvering towards gunfire that just came in their direction. It's the greatest honor in the entire world to see something like that, to lead Marines who are so selfless and who only care about, you know, the, the Marine on their right and their left. And uh, to me, that, that's the greatest honor I've ever had. 
um, you know, to this point. And I, I think that it, it's just chilling to even think about, you know, what those guys do and, and how selfless they are. You look at them now and, and we, we come back into society that we're in now that we're not exactly so selfless. You know, we're, uh, it, it's an interesting society. And I think that's why so many guys have t- trouble adapting. Yeah, I mean, they go from this remarkable teamwork, this remarkable sense of camaraderie and sacrificial love. Let's let's call it what it is, because in the end, they're experiencing this beautiful thing called sacrificial love. And then they get right back out into the real world. And my goodness, a lot more selfishness, a lot more uh, uh, egocentric and centered on the individual. Let's dig into your piece in The Federalist about the transition back into civilian life. You start with these great lines. I'm going to read them to you. Two weeks after returning from Iraq in 2009, I was sitting in school, opting to use the GI Bill to earn my law degree. And there I sat, alongside 23-year-olds who spent the last four years partying, sometimes studying, and going to football games. I spent the last four years of my life as a Marine infantry officer. Too many veterans face the same situation. They come home from fighting a war that has been all but forgotten. 22-year-old veterans return stateside from war with the life experience of a 42-year-old. Then they go to college and sit next to 18-year-old drama queens they simply can't relate to. They haven't seen the last X number of seasons of whatever is popular on TV. They're probably wearing the same clothes they wore in high school and could relate better with an 80-year-old Korean War veteran than any college freshman. Talk about that. You know, I, I think I was lucky. Uh, you know, I'm sitting next to a 23-year-old college kid who's at least gotten some of the party out of his system. Um, and who at least knows they're in a professional school. But but think about that, that 22-year-old or that 23-year-old who's now sitting next to that 18-year-old. You know, it, it's there's a reason that, you know, we've almost lost half the Marines from my battalion, or we lost 18 Marines in Iraq. We've almost lost half that many to suicide since we've come back. And it's because you try to get them to transition and understand um, you know, and adapt and assimilate into, you know, the college culture and and they just can't. Um, you know, they, they we're lost on a social spectrum because we're not going to be able to tell you what happened in the season of office space or office the office. You know, um, I, I haven't watched TV in years, um, and most of these Marines missed every series that came out. And you know, and we're still wearing the same stuff from high school because one, it you know probably doesn't fit. But I know that every time I deployed and when I came back. Um, my clothes, you know, you're like, what happened to my clothes? I thought I stored them here. And you come back and, you know, maybe that box got lost or something like that. And, you know, and so we are kind of uh, SOL at that point. Um, it, it is an interesting transition time. Yeah, and you also note in the piece that the combat veterans' bodies have been in fight or flight mode for months, if not years, and that the production of cortisol in particular, which the body produces in, in anxiety, is helpful in these short-term fights but as you put it, it stays there for long, long periods of time. And people experience anxiety, depression, and sleep problems as a result of this. And by the way, extended exposure to cortisol kills short-term memory and also makes concentration difficult. So talk about the actual combat experience, how it changes you physically, because um, I don't think people are aware of this, Jonathan. Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting reading the science of it, you know, in, in going through and, and figuring out. I mean, it took me years to figure out what had happened to my body or what was under, you know, what I understood that had happened to my body. You know, when you're out outside the wire, when you're when you leave the battalion area and you're out on patrol, I mean, you may be outside of the wire for three, four or five days, maybe even a week. And 
you don't go to the bathroom. Uh, you know, you you may have to if you're hydrating properly. Yeah, you're you're probably going to urinate some, um, but you you don't um, you know fully go to the bathroom or anything like that. And um, you know, and then when you, as soon as you step inside the wire, I mean, there's a process. You go through and you clear your weapon and you. Um, you know, you're, if you're on a mounted patrol, you're dismounting the, we- the vehicles and, and get everything prepped. But literally, as soon as you step inside the wire, it hits you, and your body it starts releasing that serotonin, which relaxes you. And at that point, you're like, man, I've got to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll, you'll see an entire unit, a squad, um, you know, that's just like everybody's looking at each other like, hey, we're going to park the vehicles, and then we're all running to the head. And, uh, you know, and that's just part of it. It's the relaxation. You know, the, the fight-or-flight mode, when you've got that serotonin that's pumping through your veins and you're out on patrol, you're not going to the bathroom, but you're also hypervigilant. You're, you are keenly aware of everything going on because your body is pushing all the oxygen up to your brain so that you can do that, so that you can be more aware because you're in that fight-or-flight mode. You're in survival mode, and your body is instinctually is preparing your, you know, putting all the, uh, the, the oxygen to your brain and to your muscles uh, that are going to be used, not to the digestive system, which at that point is not necessary for survival. And you also point out the hypervigilance that, that is a, almost a habit, the way you're scanning rooms for threats, the way you're looking at almost everything when you're in combat. Well, suddenly you're in law school, and that hypervigilance, that habit, it's got to be off-putting now for you. And how do you explain that to anybody, Jonathan? you got about a minute here. We're going to continue on the other side. But talk about that, the habits you pick up that were helpful as a Marine, which are now, well, maybe not so helpful in a classroom or on a date. Yeah, they don't help much on the date. Uh, they don't help much on in the classroom. And to be totally honest, I wasn't very social. I mean, I, you know, like I had friends and everybody was generally nice to me. Um, but, you know, like uh, I had trouble relating to people or even talking to people a lot of times. And, and so, yeah, you sit in the back of the classroom or you sit in a certain area. You know the, the seat that you're going to have in that classroom that's going to either make you get out of there quickly or keep anybody from having, you know, being behind you. Assigned seating uh, in the classroom would always drive me nuts. You know, but nothing you can do about that usually. Nothing you can do. And by the way, I can't tell you how many people, Jonathan, you know, I, I routinely would go to Walter Reed when I was living in Washington. And, and then when friends of mine would meet soldiers, particularly soldiers who'd been through stressful experiences, they'd always say to me, what should I say? What should I say? And by the way, it, it's not their fault. They don't know what to say. And it, very often they're not equipped to hear what a soldier might have to tell them anyway. And when we come back, Jonathan, we're going to talk about those things and so much more. We're talking to Jonathan McConnell, and we're looking inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Jonathan McConnell's story, when we continue.
is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Jonathan McConnell and his piece in The Federalist, A Look Inside a Combat Veteran's Transition to Civilian Life. And after serving in Iraq, and my goodness, under the toughest combat circumstances in Fallujah, uh, a not good place to be in Iraq at the time that Jonathan was serving there. And then to, well, not quite as stressful in, uh, a circumstance, but always stressful in the end when you're overseas and people are potentially going to shoot at you at any given time. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. I wanted to pick up where we left off. Tell us a bit about insomnia and tinnitus, which, as you say, is a ringing in the ears on steroids. Talk about those two things. Yeah, so, um, you know, tinnitus is a a slight ringing of the ears that, you know, sometimes you can hear, uh, and then sometimes it gets so loud that you can't focus on anything else. Um, And, you know, a lot of times that, that happens at night. Um, it, it exacerbates that lonely feeling that you have uh, and that no one else, uh, you know, can connect with you, mainly because you're, you're the only one who hears it. Um, it that can be uh, an extremely frustrating feeling uh, sometimes. And, and it's, um, but, you know, it's just it's one of those things that you have to manage. Uh, once you realize that that's what's going on, that you can, you know, w- when I finally figured out that, hey, no one else hears this, or I, I realize no one else hears it, but, okay, hey, um, this is the tinnitus, and you breathe deeply, and you make sure you keep getting oxygen to the brain instead of stopping to think, you know, stopping and stop breathing, and you know, or slowing down your breathing. You overbreathe, uh, and you um, take deep breaths, and just you know, be- become cognizant of what's going on, and that helps you to you know qu- more quickly cope with it or deal with it, and just saying, hey, you know, I'm I'm experiencing this, but I'm experiencing this because you know, hey, I serve my country, and and no one else can relate to this right now or at least no one else that's in the room with me right now and you know that's okay it's not, it's not a big deal but you know maybe even step out and try to get somewhere quiet where you're by yourself because it is there's fewer things that are more annoying if someone tries to talk to you when you're dealing with that and you're like i can't hear you but you know or it's harder for me to concentrate on what they're saying so i try to isolate myself and just breathe deeply and just take it some time to meditate what about that insomnia problem talk about that because that's got to be combined with this uh tinnitus uh, quite a tandem, I would think, that can really work on the psychology of a soldier. This sound that you you know is there, but no one else does, and you have to deal with it psychologically uh, forever, or at least for a long time, but throw on that the overlay of not sleeping or having difficulty sleeping, and you can really get into some serious disorders, Jonathan. You can. Um, you know, and the insomnia is just something that I, you know, I suffered with for years. And, you know, I, I looked at it as an opportunity to treat it more like a deployment. Thankfully, I did, it's not that I never had anything to do. I've always had something to do. Uh, so I've, I've read a lot. Um, you know, I, um, I think it's beneficial not to watch TV and use that as a distraction. So I, I always use my insomnia as productive time. Uh, but, yeah, it you know, be three or four in the morning and I was still studying for law school or still reading or working and you know and you go to sleep for two or three hours and then wake up and it's just time to start the day again it can be extremely frustrating it is extremely lonely there's not many people that are still up at that time you know i i found myself often using um you know social media at one point was very distracting you'd be wondering why people are not posting something new at two or three in the morning and i realized like and you're getting anxiety about that and you know and of course at that point i'd be like well you know what i'm going to do is i'm just going to delete all of my social media there's no point in this it's a distraction and using that time just to be productive um and you know that helped but i also know guys who don't uh you know guys who are suffering with insomnia who you know can't sleep at night um and uh and who you know it's a it's a time where they spend too much time thinking and they're battling that you know battling with themselves and that's definitely got to be tough 
Yeah, and it's tough if you try to medicate it, too, um, because then you get into real problems. There are four letters that describe a condition that includes a lot of what we've been talking about, Jonathan. Tell us about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Folks have heard this term. They've heard the letters. But until I saw what you wrote, I had no idea myself. And I've been around soldiers a lot. It really helped me understand. Walk folks through this, Jonathan. You know, PTSD, uh, you know, I think that it's one of the most diagnosed um, um, things that are out there. It has a lot of negative connotations. Yep. Uh, but, but PTSD is something that, that so many people go through. Uh, you know, if you have a, um, you know, people who, you know, are victims of sexual assault, people who are victims of, of just seeing something that, you know, they shouldn't have or that, that it's just a highly traumatic event. And, and they, they go through it. Uh, when you... Experience those as a as a veteran. A lot of times, there's a lot more negative connotations about it. Um, you know, you have a lot of people who are also because of those negative connotations are not even going to get help. Um, I know a lot of veterans who you know refuse to get help because they're like, well, if I, if I get diagnosed with PTSD, that could potentially cost me my job if it's a security job or if it's a job that requires them to carry a weapon. Um, some of them also you know, who are receiving disability for PTSD, which is, you know, in some cases extremely valid, um, they're afraid that the, you know, that they may lose their rights to carry a weapon. I have heard stories of that happening, uh, and I can see where the, you know, ATF could deny someone the ability of doing that if they're um, committed to a mental institution against their will, but often that's not true. And it's a, you know, I think a lot of these Marines out there or veterans out there need to get help and are often um, just afraid of losing a right like that, which I do not believe they will, but they're afraid to, and so they, therefore they don't get the help they truly need. Yeah, and I also think that, look, it's no accident that a lot of the folks drawn to the military have a sense of uh, testosterone, machismo, and it's also an admission that you need help. And look, we know from the greatest generation, my goodness, you had guys coming back from World War II who never told anybody anything. And they, they suffered from not being able to share and get treated. Um, we did a, an hour on Major Dick Winters, and he was telling a story about how in his 70s, he was simply walking by a house, and a kid was running his hands through a white wooden fence, and it made a racket. And he instantly hit the ground, his heart raced, and he was back uh, in Bastogne all over again, and it never went away 40 years later. Um, so talk about that. Also, what was interesting in your piece is that it turns out PTSD is, one, highly treatable, but moreover, the RAND Corporation determined that only 34% of patients newly diagnosed with PTSD received minimally appropriate care following the diagnosis. That's crazy. Absolutely, it is. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, it, how how do oh, I think we're still treating it? You know, you can go to the VA if you can get an appointment. If I'll caveat it with that, um, but two, you can go to a psychologist out in town, and, and you know, and are they capable of actually understanding or, or dealing with what you're dealing with? Right. You know, I, I've actually uh, talked to a psychologist before, and and uh, had gone to talk to him about uh, you know something completely different, just you know as a just a checkup, and started talking to him about the war, and and literally, and he buckled up and kind of you know, got very defensive and said, we're not here to talk about that. And, uh, and literally he had not dealt with it. And I mean, this guy is a, is a, is a psychologist and just said, you know, we're, this is the scope of what we're talking about. And, uh, and that's outside of it. We're not doing that anymore. And, um, and, and to the point of, I kind of thought he was joking and I kept going and he dropped the F bomb on me and said, we're not effing talking about it. And I was just like, well, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, and some people just haven't. Um, and I don't always think that, 
psychologists are the best people to talk to them about it. I think that a lot of it's just, you know, uh, you could get more from, um, you know, joining a Marine Corps League or veteran service organization and talking to them, uh, you know, people who've been through the same thing because they're, they are going to understand. And understanding that, you know, it, you know, a psychologist is not always going to be the one who's going to talk to you about, hey, man, here's the reason that your body's doing this. Uh, some are great, uh, but they are not all created equal either. And a veteran who's, who's been through it and whose body suffered through it, you know, they're going to be able to tell you uh, if, if they'll relate to you, you know, what, what they've gone through and, and maybe help you through it. And I think uh, one of the things that's not there for this round of soldiers, my dad always told me, because he didn't serve in Korea, he just missed it, but he was in the Air Force. But he said that VFW and those halls filled with those men, that, that, was their, that was their counseling center. And there were so many survivors of World War II and the Korean War that when these guys gathered in VFW halls, they were able to share with one another in ways, let's face it, civilians just didn't understand. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Jonathan McConnell, his piece in The Federalist, a look inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life caught our attention. We knew you wanted to hear his story. We were sure of it. And when we come back, you'll hear the last segment in this hour-long story of Jonathan McConnell and his life in combat and then out. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories in our last segment in an hour-long conversation with Jonathan McConnell. And Jonathan, for veterans who have found help for PTSD, there are persistent challenges of what many call grief or survivor's guilt. And those are two reasons why many veterans have trouble empathizing with civilians. Tell us more about that, because I don't think civilians can possibly understand this thing. You know, it's one of those things that I suffered with for years. Um, you know, like when it came to to living, you know, living life and, and, and you know, being up late at night or, you know, saying like, hey, I have an opportunity to live right now, but, but these Marines did not, you know, and especially ones that, you know, that you knew that were under your command and you're just like, hey, I'm doing this for Cliff or I'm doing this for Josh, you know, the, the ones who are out there. Um, you know, you, you just feel guilty for still being alive. And, um, you know, I know one of the hardest moments that I ever had um, was stepping off that bus when I came home. I, I wasn't, I mean, I loved that my family was there and it meant a lot to me, but the whole time it was, you know, the the stress of having to meet the mother of one of my Marines who didn't come home and, and hand her his dog tags. And, you know, she was the most gracious woman in the entire world and, and gave us all big hugs and, and uh, was very, very sweet. And to this day, we stay in contact with her. We annually... We've started doing a, a retreat um, with where everybody uh, spends a weekend together, and she always comes and is basically she lost one son, but she gained another sixty, um, and and that's how she looks at it. She's she leads us uh, and is you know is more beneficial to us than we are to her. I'm sure of it, but you know that survivor's guilt is still there, and and it would be years that I would you know just be sitting there and just break down and just you know wondering why why did I make it, but. 
you know, he did not. And um, and that's something that, you know, we think about constantly. And it's just, it, it, you can't explain it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that, um, you know, I, I'm a believer. I, you know, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian most of my life. And I, I still have not found where God's role is in war. And you cannot explain some things that happen. And you just have to trust that, hey, there's a reason I'm still alive. But to me, I use it as an opportunity just to, to work harder and to, to be better and, and live the life that he doesn't get to live. I'm going to live it in his place, and I'm going to work harder and be successful in his place. Yeah, you know, a lot of people talk about a lack of faith or the rise of atheism in the, in, in the 21st century. But people don't understand that right after World War II, this was when the greatest rise of atheism occurred. Because so many people, what a colossal collision with your faith. Why would a just God uh, allow 60 million people to die in a conflagration, uh, in death camps, uh, to nuclear annihilation, to, to, to flamethrowers? Um, these are things that challenge any decent person's faith. Uh, Jonathan, talk about that because you saw some things and, and, and probably felt some things about human beings that you just didn't think you were capable of. You do. I mean, well, let's look at the Marine Corps in general. Let's look at the the fruits of the spirit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self control. I mean, where does the Marine Corps fall in any of those? You know, patience, tactical patience, maybe self control. Yeah, I'll give us that. We're good at that. Love, joy. Um, I don't think so. Uh, so, you know, where do you find God in the Marine Corps? You know, uh, in, it is definitely a, a very, uh, most of the people in there are godly people, but it is very hard to understand the role of, uh, you know, Christianity or, or whatever your God is in, um, in the Corps. But then you exacerbate that with war and seeing what you see when you see children who were killed. Um, you know, when you, when you see some of the death and some of the destruction and, and the suffering um, you know the sounds of war. You, you know, or just the instruments of war. You know, these roadside bombs, or you know, a one five five shell that's exploded. When people pick up the piece of metal that I still have, you know, and I, you know, show it to them, and they're like, "This is such heavy metal." I'm like, "Yeah, you know, like so is the explosion that goes with it. It's a, it's an explosion that you've never felt before. The, the military grade explosives that reverberate through your body. It's, it's no small thing. And, and you know, where is God in that? I don't know." It was years before I talked to God. Um, you know, I, uh, after losing one of my Marines, I, I did not talk to God for several years because I was so angry uh, that, you know, he took him and not me. And, you know, and it's finally, you know, my fight with God finally ended, and I realized it was going to be okay, and this was m- me, my doing, not his. And uh, But it's something that, that I'm sure there's so many people that go out there and deal with. And, and I remember what finally got it for me was just realizing, like, hey, I'm either not going to go forward with life anymore or, you know, or I'm going to finally talk to God and, and forgive myself and, you know, and forgive God, even though he didn't need to be forgiven, but literally laid prostrate on the ground and prayed and just for the first time in years. And because, you know, at that point it reached a point where it was either that or, or the other way. So. Yeah, and I think this explains suicide for some people. I mean, here you are talking to us the way you're talking about, that you were looking at a fork in the road, the literal to be or not to be, Jonathan. I mean, that's where you were. Yep, absolutely. And let's, let me read something here that I think is a follow-up. You wrote, wrote in this, To the families and friends of veterans, my advice is to shut up and listen. Importantly, don't ask questions you can't accept an answer to. If you ask what the worst experience a veteran had was, which is not a question I advise asking, don't gasp and look at us like we just kicked a puppy. It's war. It's hell. 
It happens. Don't damn us to live it in perpetuity. Talk about that. You know, I've been asked numerous times, you know, about the war, and it's, you know, we're not a we're not a toy. You don't sit there and put us on the ground and press play. And so many times that would happen. And um, you know, and whether it was a, a family get together and someone asked you, hey, what was the best thing about being in Iraq? And I just kind of looked at him, and you know, and I was still dealing with the death of a Marine, and I was just like, well, what the hell do you think was the best thing about being in Iraq? I don't know. Like, I got toilet paper. You know, I don't know. I mean. It's uh, the days that that a mail would come and we would get wet wipes. I mean, that was pretty amazing. You got to take a bath then. Um, and, and so that was something that, you know, we struggled with. And then some people, you know, for some odd reason, the first question they would ask is, did you lose any of your Marines or did you did you ever have to kill anyone? And, you know, and, and often you would just say, you know, hey, uh, you know, you just tell them one of the worst stories you could come up with that you remembered. And then at that point, they would look at you like you just kicked a puppy or that you, you know, clubbed a seal right in front of them. You're like, well, hey, you asked. Um, and it's, it's, you know, the times that I've ever opened up to talk about it voluntarily is usually it's on my terms. You know, if you're just hanging out with people that you love that know are going to love you regardless of what you tell them um, and how atrocious it is or whatever, and you tell them about it and you hope that they don't look at you and you're just like, oh, that's horrible. Um, and as you just say, you, you know, you, the response you want is like, hey, Thanks for telling me that. I know that was tough to deal with. Not, um, we don't need people to tell us how horrible it was. We know. We live with it every day. Um, you know, but just um, instead of responding and saying, like, that's awful. How did y'all do that? Or how could y'all do that? If you understood the scenario that that evolved around it, it's, it's not easy. Yep. And 18 Marines from your battalion were killed in action in Iraq. 18. But suicide has prematurely claimed almost half that number since returning home, Jonathan. That I found extraordinary. So you lost nine of your comrades to self-inflicted injuries and death. This has to be as painful or in some ways more painful than the 18. And I don't want to weigh the balance because it's all painful, Jonathan. But to know that they came home and survived and then couldn't make it. My goodness, what a thing to weigh on all of you. Well, Lee... Yeah, and so go to one of those funerals with us, you know, and and I'll just take you through it, you know, through a story. But, you know, the last funeral I went to uh, was last summer, and with one of the Marines who had um, who had essentially drank himself to death. You know, you look around at the maybe 40 of us that went to that funeral, and you're like, okay, well, who are the survivors still? You know, we're all still survivors, and who are going to make it, or who's next? You know, and you look around, and you're like, you know, I can picture those three as being next. Or, or how's this person doing? And it's a great opportunity for us to kind of check ourselves and to reach out to each other, and you know it's beneficial. And But there are some of the guys there that you're like, I won't be surprised if within the next year I get a phone call that, that he's, he was the one who was next. And, you know, and so we try to reach out to those guys, and we try to get ways to get them to come to our reunion and, and to talk to people. But, but some know that's what we're doing, and so they, they keep us at an arm's distance. You know, it's a struggle that we fight every day. I can tell you that I'm in a great spot. Haven't been in a better spot, I don't think, before in my life right now. Just happiness, especially with a little boy coming and being married, you know, love life. Uh, but I'm looking at some of the other Marines who are just really struggling right now. And, um, you know, and, and we try to check in with them, but it, it's just tough. And what's an answer policy-wise? You're talking to the President of the United States right now, where you got all the congressmen, and they're going to do whatever you tell them. What's one thing you tell them to do? For the for the boys, for your com- boys and girls, the comrades in arms in Iraq and Afghanistan, what's the one thing you'd tell them to do? Besides resign? Uh, just kidding. <laughs> no, uh, uh, I was just good opportunity for term limits there in Congress. Yep. But yep. Um, 
you know, I, I'd say if anything, come up with the voucher program that allows them to um, to to get the care they need. Even the VA admits that they're broken. You know, you, they instead of calling the one eight hundred number, or instead of calling you know whatever the standard number is, the the VA hospital that you know that that I've the ones that I've been to gives you a separate number that is a direct line to them because they know that hey, don't get co- called in the phone system, the federal system, because it's gonna you'll never get through to us. Here's a number you can call and. But you don't ever get access to that till you get in, until you get that first appointment or even to the appropriate appointment. And so these these guys aren't getting help. And so getting them a, a voucher to where they can go to the hospital or a, a psychiatrist that's you know five miles away as opposed to fifty or seventy miles away, uh, I think that would be a, an easy prescription that's that's fixable much quicker. Yeah, and a choice system. If anybody deserves choice, it's our it's our combat veterans. Uh, period. And I think Americans would rally around that. Jonathan McConnell, his article in the Federalist, a look inside a combat veteran's transition to civilian life. And Jonathan now is the president of Meridian U.S., a private security firm that primarily defends merchant ships off the coast of Somalia. Still doing some pretty dangerous stuff, but married, expecting a boy, and moving on and living just a great life. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Lee, thanks for having me.